drag us around. That's right, because I don't have to go to anything ever again. I've seen it all. You have, you've been everywhere. I just, uh, Bayer Tapestry, seen that. Oh, yeah. Well, so they were teachers. So they got those really long holidays. Yeah. So we used to just have a caravan, yeah. drag it round continental Europe. Oh, you're and so if lucky. it was rainy, oh, I mean, they were amazing holidays. Yeah. And if it was raining in where we'd start in Brittany or Normandy, or, you know, we'd see the Mulberry buildings, then mm. we'd just keep driving south until it got a bit sunnier. Yeah, it was lovely and they had time. We didn't run any money, but we had time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was great. And they would just sit in their deck chairs of an evening, read their books, mm. have a barbecue. And my brother and I would go and cause some trouble around the table tennis Smoke. table. Do you think? I, yeah, probably later on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> find yeah. you know find some French boys to talk to a disco. Ooh, yeah, <laughs> it was great. Exciting. It was really really fun. It yeah. was re- they were really fun holidays. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I don't know anyone who gets to take their kids away for a month. You know, because no, with the exception, do you yeah. think teachers still do it? Maybe teachers still do. I went to school with some kids who were the kids of teachers, and they did have caravans and did mm. do that sort of thing. Yeah, it's we, just really free. It was lovely. Yeah. We just used to have to go to really damp chalets in oh. North Wales. And, oh, oh. I'm not com- well, I am complaining. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not complaining. That's a load of bollocks. Um, um, right. So, uh, you know, it's a super moon tonight. Do you know about this? No, I don't. It's a super moon tonight. So that's like a double full moon. Will I be additionally bonkers this Uh, evening? Well, if you if you would like, Jane, you can get on the train with me after this. No thanks. Come to Brighton. I'm going for a full moon swim where people get in the water and howl at the moon. Welcome to Off Air. (laughs) The two Janes are in session. So tell me about this. This is a real uh, Brighton tradition, isn't it? I've I've never done it before because Because you're quite new to Brighton. But last summer when I was house sitting for my friends and sort of scoping it out as a new place to move to, I was wandering along the seafront with my parents. It was a beautiful balmy night. There were lots of people in the water, mainly women. I thought, that's fine. Mm. They're doing, you know, some sort of communal thing. And then this noise started. I thought, what's that? And we walked over to the sea. They were all howling. Howling Howling at at the moon. moon. Yeah. That's a thing. It's a thing. It's a full moon swim. But why do you have to howl? It's just fun, isn't it? Okay. Primal. I mean, I know that if you ask... And then you go and get some chips. Yeah, right. Well, I could go. I had chips from the canteen for lunch. I was going to say no because the, you could just have had salad. Oh, with the halloumi, with the halloumi mm. and the flatbread. But then I thought, well, I might not have a hot dinner tonight. Yeah, and it seems a waste if they're there. Well, that's what I think. Yeah. I'm actively helping the environment <laughs> by having chips, but I'm still, I'm still relatively new to this building, and the thrill of the canteen chip has not left me. I'm not sure it ever leaves you. No, okay. But Mm. I'm interested in the moon and the pull, the interest that women have in it because the moon is much more influential than I think we fully understand. I Mm. mean, in terms of like periods, for example. Tides, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, And people's behaviour around a full moon. Well, we're lunatics, aren't we? Well, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I mean, if you ask somebody who works in A&E, I mm. think they will tell you that... Really? Yes, I think so. And and if you ask the police about what happens on nights when there's a full moon, wow. uh, there's absolutely an impact. We'll have listeners who know something about this, certainly so, more than I do. So I'll be very careful when I go for yeah. a swim later. Yes, do do be very, yeah. very careful. We were talking last night about why, and we've been told, by the way, we can't talk as much <laughs> as we did last night, so apologies for anybody who stuck it out to the end of last night's podcast. Our marathon chatathon. Yeah, well, we're going to keep it very relatively brief. brief. Brusque, but 
but but the problem is we've got too many good emails. Yeah. So I'm going to shut up in a minute and just get on to the emails. It's Jane and Fee at times.radio. Don't forget, Fee is back on Monday. Um, but we were talking about why it is that in terms of the women's football team, for example, England, um, nobody cares whether Roman's gay or not. They just, they're just teammates and that's the end of that. That's not a big issue. Uh, lesbians in women's football, not a problem. And why would it be? It certainly shouldn't be. Why it can't be the same in men's sport and why it just seems to be that so many men are fearful of being thought of as gay. And this is a really interesting email, email from a listener called Derry who says, I'm an avid listener and I was listening yesterday when you were discussing the difference between men and women's football, notably the way that women football, women's football fans, players and managers have no interest or hostility towards sexuality. It got me thinking because I'm a gay man who, without trying, is rather obviously not heterosexual. Imagine, I like the sound of Derry, he says, imagine a mixture of Noel Coward and Bette Davis living at the birdcage. Uh, being this way means I will get attention from the more primitive gene pools, most often from the male of the species. I have an idea that the reason men of this kind, ranging from cheeky chappy blokey blokes to Andrew Tate wannabes, is simply because they feel that a gay man will treat them the same way that they treat women. In other words, lesser than them in importance, freedom and ability. I've got no solution to this other than if we beta males, decent alpha and decent alpha males club together to do something. The only way that this vast group could be organised is by somebody able, determined and patient. So if you're looking for a side project, maybe you two should have a go. Right, OK, well... Not sure either is as patient, but thank you for the vote um, of confidence. Uh, yeah, thank, yes, thank you very much for the vote of confidence. And, uh, and the yes, important email. It's, it's a very, fascinating. It's a very important email, and I'm really sorry that you've been on the receiving end of uh, idiotic attention from people you mm. describe as from the more primitive gene pools. I like the Andrew Tate wannabes. I know yeah. exactly who you're talking about. There's, yeah. a, there's another email as well on the same subject, yeah. which... Um, uh, I thought was fascinating. It's a long email, so forgive me, I, I won't read all of it out because we are on the clock tonight, as yes, we've been told very, much so. very firmly. Um, dear Jane and Jane, or Jane and Fee, or Fee and whomever, <laughs> inclusive email. Yep. Um, so on the same subject, puzzling about why men are sensitive about possibly being thought gay, or by perhaps showering with someone on a team who is not heterosexual. Two thoughts sprang instantly to mind, says our listener. Number one is disdain for anything perceived as feminine. Um, so the idea that gay men are more like women and basically they, what our listeners are saying, their wives were lesser beings based on these comments that they would make about them not finding their mothers particularly interesting. Mm. Um, the second part, I think, is, is, is a more interesting observation. And this is it's a female listener. Yeah. But I think it's a very interesting observation. Um, is the male gaze. Since men are the perpetrators of the male gaze, perhaps they have strong insight into what goes through their heads when they look at women. And it's unpleasant to think some guy is looking at them with those thoughts in their heads. It is likely not thoughts of respectful partnership that are uppermost in their minds at such a time. Um, I think that's interesting, mm. but I also think that that's possibly not... I don't think that's strictly a male thing. I think there's a female gaze that also isn't thoughts about, you know, respectful partnerships. No. Um, but I do some. I do think that our listener is onto something. Yes. When I think men know men. Yeah, and know what they're capable of. Yeah. But you are right. It, this is. It's not unique to men. No. I mean, I think probably when you stop appraising 
either the same sex or the opposite mm. sex, whatever you're into, um, is probably when you're, you know, beginning to, to peter out. <laughs> Um, well, you know what I'm saying. I was going to say, uh, most people have keep a weather eye out mm. for, uh, which is just, just human nature. I should hope so. Yes. It, yeah. And it doesn't mean you're being unpleasant. And I certainly wouldn't dream of saying anything. God forbid, I'd never say anything. But, you no. know, you can't help your mind straying in certain directions. It's just like appreciating a nice flock wallpaper. But please don't worry if you're sitting opposite me on the Northern Line a little bit later. I should be <laughs> listening to my audiobook and my thoughts would be extraordinarily pure. Um, Derek says, I like to chat on the pod on Tuesday about all things Women's World Cup. However, much as Mary Earps' achievements are impressive... I want to put a shout out for Katerina Johnson-Thompson as Sports Personality of the Year. She's just won her second world championship in seven sports, of course, as heptathlon champion. Uh, plus, Jane, she is a scouser, which I know elevates her somewhat in Garvey Towers. <laughs> so amongst those calls for Mary, please spare some for another female sporting icon. It's a really good point, Derek. You're absolutely right. And Katerina Johnson-Thompson is phenomenal because I think a few people had written her off wrongly mm. because she's very much back and brilliant, brilliant she just had a great time at Budapest, Fantastic. Didn't she? Yeah. Um, we've been pulled up on a few things that we said yesterday. <sighs> I know. I feel like yeah, we might have to say some sorries. Um, uh, one listener writes to say that the podcast never ever irritates her until. But we got her going yesterday with her with our "We're Less Sexist in Britain" chat. Yeah, okay. Um, and I do apologise if it came across that way. That was certainly not our intention. Um, she says, when we march in Spain, you touch one of us, you touch us all. Where's your solidarity? Who cares if this particular case wouldn't happen in Britain, since when do feminists only care about their own gaff? And this is true. Feminism yeah. is a global issue. And I have to say, when I went on the Women's March in DC, the very first Women's March, I've never felt more connected to half the whole population mm. of the world as I did that day. And it's an extraordinary feeling, yeah. knowing that you are marching with half the world and all focus on one singular topic. Um, she then gives a list of the sexist things from the UK that don't happen in Spain, which include national newspapers plastering naked women on page three, um, front pages of newspapers and magazines dissecting women's bodies or female politicians' clothes or bodies, like the British media regularly does. Yeah. Electing enough women, 44% of Spanish parliamentarians up to the last election in July are women, compared to only 35% in the UK. Spain's much shorter democracy, she says. We've already had 61 ministers of government to the UK's 53, presumably as women. Um, they haven't had a, a female Spanish prime minister, have they? Not that I know of, no. no. I'm sorry. Um, in Spain, all women are entitled to legal aid when fighting for custody for their children in cases where there's an accusation of violence. And that includes migrant women without legal residency status, victims of gender-based violence. They're all given the same rights as legally resident women. Um, Spain has taken huge leaps and strides because of the recognition of a machismo culture that still needs to be dismantled. There is sexism everywhere and we battle it together. Rest on your laurels at your peril in the UK. Um, we definitely don't rest on our laurels, but thank you for pulling us up on the fact that we may have been making a few broad sweeps yeah, there. Yeah, of course. So apologies for that. I mean, where would we be without the sweeping generalisation? <laughs> I would literally be out of work. <laughs> well, the, the podcast would only last two minutes, wouldn't no, it then? It really would. Um, a quick one from uh, Sevda. Thank you for this. Annoying words. Uh, they say, I didn't have, even have to think even for a second. I hate people who use the word super instead of very. Please make it stop. I'm going to call it a very moon this evening. Well, no, I do. I do understand. <laughs> it's when people say, "Oh, I had a super excited, it's super exciting." Yeah. I'm just, yes, I'm with you. I it was super good. I totally get it. Please do stop that. Um, J 
Jane and Jane, uh, we've we've had a listener giving us the German word for being pleasantly surprised by a donut when you expected oh, a custard yes. tart. Yes. Christina, who is a German listener but lives in Fees Neck of the Woods, says it's Krapfenfreude. I, I've got a suspicion that Christina might be pulling all of our collective well, legs with that. I don't know. I Crap have, from uh, Freude. Can anyone corroborate that? I need a second source. But I like it, so I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm gonna, very happy to use go it. with it. Uh, M says, apropos the listener's comment about the word fine, I was told by a man when I worked uh, that the acronym fine, F-I-N-E, stood for effed off, insecure, neurotic and emotional. Best said with pursed lips. <laughs> Right. I could definitely do that. Fair enough. Um, this is uh, doesn't work quite so well on, on radio because uh, they sent us a picture, this listener. Um, Dear Jane and Fee, I happened to be cleaning and tidying my crockery cupboard le- yesterday while listening to the show. I even painted it and recovered the shelves and it makes me very happy and calm. So I sent you a photo. I hope you like it. I have to say... Just I did looking like it. At, looking yeah. at her calm cupboard was the most soothing thing I've done all day. Thank you for your Thank images, you, Sally. Of your calm cupboard. I completely oh, I concur. It. It's a thing of beauty. It's sort of like, you know, they tell you to breathe 10 counts in and out. Just looking at Sally's cupboard made me feel like that. I don't know if you're on Instagram, but you should put yourself on, Sally, with endless images of oh, your calm yeah. cupboard. And like then, ASMR for the eyes. Yes, it would be. And mm. spread calm throughout the social media world because it needs it. it Can I get one it. more ad for elasticated waist trousers? <laughs> I swear, I'll do time. Um, I, I just wanted to mention this. Um, it's a very serious email, a very important one, actually, uh, from a listener. We don't need to mention her name. About the interview that I did a couple of weeks ago with um, somebody I, don't, I really like, Pat Nevin, the former uh, professional footballer and writer, who has a son with autism. And this listener says, uh, I hope I'm not too late to contribute, but I do think my point is important. Our middle son, who's 20, has profound learning disabilities as well as moderate physical disabilities. He has no name diagnosis and it makes him hard. It makes it hard to explain to others his and our difficulties. He struggles with all aspects of moderating sensory input and can't understand or cope with the simplest social situation. His two brothers have grown into extraordinary young men and their childhood was so disruptive. Having friends over was hard. We couldn't have family days out unless we had respite. And then what if the film they want to see isn't on during that four hour slot? Um, Or you'd planned a lovely walk, but it was pouring with rain that afternoon. The opportunity then is gone for another month. As with your guest, Pat Nevin, our eldest son, now 22, is studying medicine and displays a level of empathy you only get when you've been there and you've got the badge. However, there is an area on which I slightly disagree with Pat. This theme does come up quite often and I always feel the same way. There's often a narrative of it was horrendous when they were diagnosed and we felt totally alone, but hey, look at them now, doing really well. Well, yes, that is wonderful, but either I'm an awful person or they're really lucky. Yes, it was horrendous when our son was diagnosed and I bore the brunt of the visits, the tests while trying and failing to get a diagnosis, taking him to years of physio, etc., losing my career whilst attempting to maintain a normal life for his siblings, whilst my husband has been the major breadwinner. 
But the truth is, it's still pretty grim now, 20 years later. Our son hasn't made amazing progress. He hasn't made some of the realistic goals that we hoped, such as becoming toilet trained. We are still largely housebound unless we have respite. On a day-to-day basis, we are happy and we've learnt to live with it. But the grief of losing the child and the life we were meant to have never leaves you. I think that's a really brave email and I think it's important to to read out because uh, I suspect that uh, correspondence speaks for many people in that situation. Um, There often isn't a neat little ending to situations like that. And I just really appreciate your honesty. Thank you for sending it in. And it's never too late, by the way, because people listen to these podcasts at all times. I mean, there'll be years from now, perhaps in outer space, that people are listening to this. And yes, if you're an alien who can speak English, (laughs) make contact. Jane and Fee at times.radio. I'm beginning to feel that Britain's the only country that hasn't been to the moon now. Practically everyone has been. Um, We're really getting left left out. Well, I am. I mean, Mm. you know, have the Irish been? Uh, No. Not yet, but it won't be long, will it? If someone said to you... Do you want to go to the moon? Would you go? Um, no, I wouldn't. But that's <laughs> because I only have an O level in biology, grade C. So I think realistically, I'd be a poor, a, a poor astronaut. But what? Maybe just you could broadcast from there. Yes, I often think that it won't a be bit long. Like the factory in Darmstadt. Yes, the factory in Darmstadt, where I think I'm sure they still talk of nothing else <laughs> but my visit. Um, it would be good, and I think it probably will happen quite soon. You know, one of those visits to space mm. that there, there, there was about mother and daughter combo went up recently, which is brilliant. Will they not send a poet or um, mm. somebody who can perhaps bring it to life in a creative way for like the rest of us? Some prize on the experience. Yes. I, yeah. I, that can't be far off, mm. can it? I would totally go to space. Would you? Oh, Sorry, yeah. I was meant to ask you. I <laughs> Fee normally says, now you can ask me. <laughs> uh, yeah. I would, would you like to go to space, Jane? I'd love to go to space, Jane. Yes, okay. I mean, I sort of... If someone says to me, do you want to do this thing? My general response is, yes, please. Um, which is usually a good thing, but sometimes yeah, but not always Let's a good be realistic. Thing. You're often asked, would you like to fly business class to LA to interview a film star? You're not going to say no to that. It's not. <laughs> I don't go just... business class. I'm in a middle seat in a middle row at the back of the plane. Nonsense. But I do get to go to nice things. Yeah. It's true. Okay. And so, yeah, why would you say no? Mm. Except sometimes I think um, I'm more capable than I am of doing the things that people asked me to do I went heli skiing in Alaska and I'm a very bad skier and so I was with some blokes who were very good right and they had to just leave me in the snow to be eaten by Wolverine kind of people were well a very handsome pilot came and got me in a helicopter so it was okay but I did have to sit on my own in the snow for a few hours well was it waiting. cold it was very cold <laughs> but i just thought if someone says do you want to go to alaska heli skiing you don't say no thanks well you don't clearly there'll be more <laughs> from jane mulkerins tomorrow on off air and indeed on the live radio show because it's oh, yeah. we can look forward to the time saturday magazine tomorrow i look always look forward to that because partly because it's near the end of my working week but also <laughs> because it's really really good so that's tomorrow uh, our big guest this afternoon is maggie alfonsi who is an england rugby union world cup winner She's also part of ITV's punditry team at the Men's Rugby Union World Cup, which starts, it's slightly coming up uh, coming up fast, actually. It starts on September the 8th with an absolutely cracking opening game between the hosts France and New Zealand. Uh, so loads to talk to Maggie about. She's also written a memoir called Winning the Fight. She is a woman of colour from Edmonton Green and 
probably not on paper likely to have been a player of rugby union. So she's got a fantastic story to tell. And first of all, we chatted about the forthcoming Men's Rugby World Cup. Yeah, the host nation, France, who are you know currently ranked um, third in the world, up against New Zealand, who are ranked fourth in the world. Um, and yet the pressure's on France, but France had the good chance of winning that World Cup. But then you can't count out the likes of South Africa, um, obviously, um, well, Ireland, who are currently number one in the world. Mm. So the list goes on. It should be a competitive tournament. Uh, obviously, a lot of the dis- discussions tend to be around England and how they're doing well, and our home nations. I was about to say, the list goes on, but your list of potential winners didn't include England, I noticed, so because they're not doing very well, are they? I hate to say it. Look, I'm a huge England fan and I always want them to do well as a team, but I guess most recently their performances haven't been great. They've only won one game in the last six and uh, they had a big defeat against Fiji on Saturday at Twickenham. And that, that, was, that was quite a dark time for English rugby because everyone expected them to do well, especially going into a, a big tournament such as the Rugby World Cup. And England, they're in a pool. They just have to get out of their pool and then aim to get through to the quarterfinals and see what unfolds in front of them but um, I think many English fans are very disappointed frustrated as well and you know naturally so the players are um, and the coaching staff so I guess all we can do is support them but at the same time we expect you know a lot from these these players to produce when it matters. Okay be honest what would be a good performance for this England team at this World Cup? Jane I love that you just you call me out there my honesty Um, so I think what would be good for the England team if if all goes to plan and they start to put in the performances, they get to the semi-finals. Um, so in their pool, a big team they've got to play against is Argentina. That's their first match, and then they've got the likes of Japan and Samoa. Um, England have some key players missing, and and by that I mean their their current England captain Owen Farrell has had a full match ban, so he's missing the first two games of the Rugby World Cup, and another player, Billy. Billy Villapola um, is missing the first game of the Rugby World Cup as well. So that's significant in terms of, you know, key individuals who who lead that side. And look, if England get out of their pool, then they'll meet likely a Wales or Australia, um, which both teams have had, you know, their ups and downs going into this Rugby World Cup. So I guess anything can happen. Um, so I guess, have I just sat on the fence there? Should uh, I get off the fence? Well, you've, I mean, the odds, I think, on England winning are, I mean, I'd, I'd win quite a lot of money if I were to put England on, uh, you know, put money on England to win, wouldn't I? Let's be honest about it. I'm being very honest, yes, you would win a lot of money. Okay. I mean, look, the last time England did well when not being perceived to do well was in the 2007 campa- campaign for the Rugby World Cup when it was held in France. England didn't do well in the pool stages. They got beaten by Africa but then they managed to get out of their pool Mm. and then they played um, Australia in the quarterfinals which people didn't think they were going to beat they beat them then they beat France in the in the uh, semi-finals which were the host nations and then they got to the final I mean lost against Africa so I guess everyone's hoping that that 2007 campaign can inspire them to do well all right. You just can't help yourself being strangely optimistic about England's prospects. Let's just rewind because uh, there must have been a time early on in your life when the prospect of you sitting at a national radio station, actually talking to another woman about men's rugby union as a pundit, it would have been completely unthinkable. So much has changed in, in your in your working life, actually, hasn't it? You're absolutely right. So when I think about women diversity full stop and seeing women in um roles that were previously dominated by men 
I, I'm so proud to think how much it's changed. And we're talking about as female athletes, we talk about in journalism, etc. Um, there's been so much growth. So if I look back to when I first started, especially when we talk about sport, there was not a lot of women or girls playing rugby union in particular. Um, it had its perceptions, its stereotypes. And when I found the sport, it was quite unique. It was because of uh, a female peer teacher, a lady called Lisa Burgess, um, who's Welsh. And she was the one who, who got me into the sport. I mean, my behaviour was quite bad, but she found the strength, you know, from that sport that okay. would... With me. I mean, I want to talk about rugby and class because there's no doubt it's still a massive issue. It's a huge factor in the... Well, in the, it indicates why certain people would never play the game and why some people absolutely always would play it. You grew up in Edmonton Green in in London, North London. It's near Brent, sort of... Is it west of it's, Brent, northwest? It's sort of more near Wolfenstone and right. Tottenham. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so not far from the, the London Stadium. That's correct. Right, absolutely OK, correct. I've, got, I've got you now. Um, and you were not a likely... Let's be honest, you were not a likely player of rugby union. Had it Had you not met that teacher... You wouldn't be here now, would you? Yeah, you wouldn't, I guess you wouldn't identify a person like me. So a, a girl, um, person of colour, um, from a very low social economic background, um, finding a sport like rugby union, that, let's be honest, that's a, that was a unique thing. So the fact that I found it from what was a quite a hard, you know, neck of the woods of North London in Edmonton Green, found the sport was just by chance and, you know... I say it again, it, it saved my life. Um, I was on very much a spiral, used to get into a lot of fights, hence the title of the book, Winning the Fight. Um, and I guess that was my my way of life, you know, trying to prove to others that I am better than them. Um, and unfortunately, I didn't really know a way out. And, and rugby really did come at the right time to, you know, the, when we talk about values, respect, discipline, it brought that to me. And I, and I found... I guess I found my way out. Would it, do you think, still happen to a, a young woman of colour growing up in Edmonton Green? Could they have a similar rugby union trajectory to the one that you've had? No. Um, at this very that's moment, that's the problem, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. If I, if we really look at it in in detail, I don't think uh, a young girl from Edmonton Green would find rugby unless they had again uh, an individual who committed themselves to helping them find the sport um look there's plenty of rugby clubs out there and now there's many clubs that have women and girls sections which is fantastic but how do we ensure that we get that link between schools and clubs how do we ensure that the stereotype of rugby is is destroyed you know people don't think it's a sport for X, Y, and Z, actually they see it as a sport for me, mm. you know, regardless of their background or upbringing, etc. So I think we, we still have a way to go with that. You know, the optics are slowly changing. Yes, mm. let's be honest, it is slowly changing. Right, and you're a big part of that, actually. You are, aren't I, you? I like to think so. Look, I'm my job is just to, to be... I don't like to use the term role model because I'm just being who I am and trying to be authentic with the hope that there is a girl in, in, in Edmonton uh, Green or a young boy in Edmonton Green who goes, I, I, do you know what, I like that sport and I really feel like it, I can see myself in it. You know, mm. people use that quote, if you can't see it, you can't mm. be it. And, yeah. you know, whether others sort of see that as true, 
if you can see somebody who almost uh, resembles you, you feel like there's a there's an opportunity to, to find your way. And if there isn't, you still think, I need to break down those barriers. Have you been back to your old school? Um, I, have, I haven't been to my, back to my old school recently. I have definitely been back since I left um, because my, my old PE teachers were still there. And, and I went back to do a talk. Um, you know, I was still on my journey at that time. And it's really hard talking to young people where you go, I'm still on my journey. And yeah, because they think you're 110. They do. <laughs> they think your journey, journey's end is where you like that no I'm sure listen you've got absolutely nothing to worry about carry on but I had yeah I went back to my school sort of soon after I, I, I left just to sort of share my story where I was up to that point um, but I have been back to the area quite frequently. You know, my mother still lives there. So um, and I still see many people who were part of my upbringing, if I'm honest, in mm. terms of other young kids who lived on the, the estate. And it's it's interesting, you know, for me, I still see that level of deprivation and frustration. And, and that's why I kind of make it my goal that I want to try and be a visible role model so those who come from those backgrounds or different areas think that there's always a, a way out or there's other opportunities that you can you know achieve your goals small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The rugby union pundit and World Cup winner with England, Maggie Alfonsi. Her book is out now. It's called Winning the Fight. Um, some people listening, Maggie, will be a bit concerned about rugby not just just not being safe, not being safe enough for many of the the professional players. We'll all enjoy watching at the, the Men's World Cup. But would you, you have two very young children, would you let them play the game? So yes, I would. So um, my two children, one is a, a little boy who's almost going to be three years old and the other one is seven months. And the reason why I say yes is because there's so much work that's been done right now to try and make the sport safer. And I think that's why I really believe in the sport. And you know, when we talk about making the sport safe, there's other strong aspects of the sport that you get a lot out from it. So for me, 
when I say it saved my life, it's because it gave me the discipline, the respect. I've made friends for life. Um, it's pretty much given me a life, you know, and that's why I think it's really important that we take away the positives from the sport. We see that the sport is doing its very best to make sure it's safe, which it is safe. Mm. And at the community level, um, as of starting of next season, they're reducing the tackle height so that there should be less head contact incidents. Um and even when you watch elite rugby now, you see there's quite a few stoppages, which is about trying to avoid the head collision. OK, can you explain the tackle, the high tackle thing? Because this is something that Owen Farrell fell foul of, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, so, Jane, I don't know how long you got here, but... Um, oh, well, so, well, don't make it too technical. <laughs> I just won't. So, um, yeah, with regards to the changing in rules right now, so players obviously can't con- make contact with head, opposition head, when making a tackle. So his shoulder um, made direct impact to uh, opposition player's head so that's a high level of um, danger they say and obviously they say there's no mitigation so when they say that that means the opposition player didn't duck or he didn't duck um the, the problem with the Owen Farrell scenario is that it went back and forward so he got given a yellow card yeah. and they went to the review process then he got given a red card and then he went to judiciary and they um said no it's a yellow card and then world rugby who are the governing body that rule rugby across the world um put out an appeal and then they went back to red card so for fans who don't know rugby that is incredibly confusing right well what is is going on red card yellow card ban no ban and if i'm honest maggie that is what stops me being a fully paid up fan of rugby union because i don't really get the rules i didn't play it because girls didn't play it when i was growing up and i never know why they're blowing the whistle and i know you're brilliant at speaking in plain english when you're, you're on the telly with itv but it does seem like a closed world to a lot of people and you raise a really fair point. That's always been my worry about the sport. Mm. Um, there are too many rules. We're adding new rules or we're adjusting current rules, again, to make it safer, but to maybe speed up the game. And for those who haven't been brought up in the sport, will look at it and go, what on earth is going on? Um, and I guess that's why it's important to have such a range of people, a diverse range of people who can talk about the sport in different ways that appeals to others. And actually, how do we make our sport much more entertaining, much more flowing? You know, I'm not, I don't know cricket that well, but mm. I've really got into it over the ashes during the men's and women's ashes. Um, same with football, you know, that's a sport. I'm a big Arsenal fan, um, but oh I've got into it more. <laughs> I've got into it more, especially with the Women's Football World Cup. I absolutely loved it. And the rules are, you know, there's less rules than there are in rugby. So I think that's a big key thing for rugby. How do we make it to a point where it's entertaining, it's less complicated and don't need the referee to have to explain everything about what's going on? I'm glad you mentioned the Women's World Cup because for the final, I did something I thought I would never do, which is that I went to a bar with my two daughters, neither of whom have got even a mild interest in men's football. And we all three of us massively keyed up for the biggest sporting event any of us could ever remember. Of course, it didn't go quite the way we intended, but it was a wonderful moment. We need to just lock that one away, don't we? It's a great memory. We should bottle it. It was absolutely amazing to see the interest, you know, globally, yeah. but obviously here in England. And the Euros, what they did in the Euros was 
was superb. But I love the fact that the amount of people that gravitated to what they were doing. The sad thing is we get to the final and then it's overshadowed by one person, oh. which, which takes away the achievement of those fantastic athletes on the field. But at least we can still say what an amazing tournament. Spain made history. Um, England got to the final. Some were doubting them to get to the final mm. and they absolutely did it. Yeah. Um, just means the future of, I'd say, women's football, women's sport is in a really good place. Can we just talk about what it's like to lose a World Cup final? Because you've won one, but you also know what it's like to lose. I think you lost two. Is that right? Yeah, thanks, Jane, for that. Well, yeah. no, no, it's just, <laughs> but you've got the ultimate triumph. So I'm going to say as a civilian that maybe that made winning all the sweeter, but I don't know. So t take, take us into the dressing room after you've lost a World Cup final. Yeah, it's it's hard. It's really hard. You you know when we talk about World Cup cycles, it's a four year process. It's almost like Olympics. You know, yeah. you you start off at the beginning of what day one, and then you keep going until the final four years is over, and you hope that you get to the final. And so I understand what the lionesses went through. Um, the preparation, the, the the challenges, people getting injured, people getting disciplined as well. Um, but when you get to the final, the, all you can think about is doing a good job over that 80 or 90 minutes. And then all you can think about is that you're going to come away with the result that you want. But when that whistle blows, there's a part of you that struggles to believe it. Mm. There's a part of you struggles to think that, okay, there's, well, there's no more extra time or there's no more what penalty shootouts. This is it. That's it. I've got to now wait for another four years. And... That, I mean, when we lost in 2006, I, I honestly believed that we were going to win it. And then we lost. And then I just felt, I was still young, so I felt quite confident that, yeah, you know, I'm going to come back again in four years' time with my England team. And we're going to win that. Yeah, we did it. We did come back. But sadly, after that four years, getting to another Rugby World Cup final in 2010 in England, in, in front of some good fans, and it was against New Zealand, when we lost there, and that was only by three points, I, I was absolutely devastated because I just thought, we, 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 we can do this. You know, we were very well funded. We had the right level of engagement across the country. Mm. We just didn't do it on the on on at the time when it needed to matter. You know, when you had to pull it out of the bag, it was it was hard, really hard. So, did that make twenty fourteen? Was it the best moment of your sporting life? Twenty fourteen. Weird as it may sound, I would actually say the best sporting moment for myself was actually singing the national anthem in two thousand and ten in our own country in that final. And the only reason why I'm saying that is because women's sport was not getting acknowledged before that. There okay. was barely interest in women's sport and we had at that time 14,000 people come to watch our World Cup final I mean that was that was unbelievably rare uh, let alone come for, to watch women's football so to have that for me was a turning point in in women's sport but then getting to the final again in 2014 and then winning it you know people go to me what did it feel like after that final and I always say it was just a relief yeah that's interesting um, you know to to spend a Theoretically, 12 years of your life trying to get to this this 80-minute match that is only going to last effectively, you know, the moment after last 60, 60 seconds, you know, it was, it, it gave, you gave you all. Uh, yeah. And it wasn't just me, obviously, all of my teammates. So when we finally did it, we finally did it, we finally got to go up on that stage, hold that gold medal around our neck. It felt so special. But I also felt for the opposition the Canadian side, because I, I knew what it felt like to, to lose. And I actually went over to many of the players and just shook their hand, like, you know, many of the Spanish players did to the Lionesses. Yes, it's, yeah. it's, it's a hard place because 
at some stage we've all been there. Yeah, well, we haven't all been there. That's the whole point. Most of us love sport. I certainly do. But I could never, ever hope to have a clue what it's like to play in a World Cup final. So it's great to get your insight. You are now um, an RFU blazer. I love this because you're kind of the, one of the Bofton Tuftons, aren't you? Who sits there and spouts things. And have you actually got a blazer? I I have a blazer, um, but the we blazer should, that I got. Yeah, we should explain that you are a member of the RFU. RFU Council. Yes, right. that's correct. Yeah, so on. the blazer that I got, um, well, you know, so you get given a blazer, and the blazer that I, I was given was a back at the time, back in 2016, was a men's blazer, a male's blazer, and it was way too big, and I had to go and get it tailored, which didn't fit. Um, so. I do have a blazer, but I now wear my own blazer that fits in with a colour scheme. Okay. So, you so just, uh, yes, to answer your question, I have a blazer. Yeah, you've just gone maverick. And I just wonder, for people listening, they might think you're sort of six foot two or something. You are, you're not actually that much bigger than me. You're, I think you're five foot three or four, is that right? Yeah, on a good day, I could be six foot, but actually, yeah, today I am five foot three. That's my real official height. Okay, so you don't have to be a particular size to excel at rugby union. No, so look, this is why I love the sport because, you know, we say it quite a lot with our strap line. It, it's a sport for all sizes, all shapes. Um, it doesn't matter what size or shape you are, there is a position for you. And and I think that's what makes the sport quite special. You know, I came into sport, I had big arms and big legs, and at school I got bullied. But then I came into rugby and they were like, wow, we'll find a position for you. You're going to be a good rugby player. <laughs> well, and that's special. Yeah, you're a flanker. And again, for those of us who aren't certain, what does a flank? What's your job as a flanker? Yeah, so I would play number seven. So for those who don't know rugby, there's eight big forwards on the on the pitch at that time, and uh, I would be one of the uh, they call loose forwards. There's, there's sort of two of them, a six and a seven, and then you've got your number eight as well, who would play on the back of a scrum. Right. So the best way to explain a seven is they have no structure, no rules. They just run around. The aim <laughs> is to tackle as many people, steal as many balls and score as many tries. I think hopefully I've summed it up. I mean, look, we're, to be honest, we're the best players on the pitch. Let's just leave it as that. Yeah, OK, you've almost sold it to me. Really enjoyed talking to Maggie Alfonsi. She was great, actually, Jane. She was one of those people that you just think, oh, I could talk to this woman for hours on end. Because rugby, you know, it is, class does play a huge part in rugby and rugby union, I'm talking about not the rugby league. And it's a plain fact that we'd probably have the best team on earth, England, if we could get a proper cross-section of society Absolutely. playing the women and the men's game. Because... You know, we've got we've just got so much sporting talent in this country, but rugby's a kind of unknown world to so many people. What, growing up in Liverpool, did mm. you did you have a lot of union and league, or was it mainly league? It was actually, funnily enough, it wasn't league. That's more Lancashire, oh. Yorkshire. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. in fact, the place, the part of Liverpool I grew up in, has its own rugby union club. Right. And my, I went to a rugby union school, mm. but it's relatively rare. Um, mm. In that part, and rugby league is a much faster game, isn't it? With fewer players, that's right, isn't it? That's the difference. Um, they don't have, they didn't have lineups or scrummages. It is faster. Yeah, there there is faster. definitely faster. My dad used to coach rugby union, so I should know that. But right. I'm very bad at knowing that. But his team did teach me to wolf whistle when I was eight. So we'll go on then. Let's end with that. that. Oh God, you really want me to wolf whistle? Well, you've you've, you've teed it up. Okay. Hideous. Right. Um, <laughs> I'm beginning to miss Fee. Um, we'll be back tomorrow. Take care. We're bringing the shutters down on another episode of the internationally acclaimed podcast Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. 
Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. But don't forget that you can get another two hours of us every Monday to Thursday afternoon here on Times Radio. We start at 3pm and you can listen for free on your smart speaker. Just shout Play Times Radio at it. Uh, You can also get us on DAB Radio in the car or on the Times Radio app whilst you're out and about being extremely busy. And you can follow all our tosh behind the mic and elsewhere on our Instagram account. Just go onto Insta and search for Jane and Fee and give us a follow. So in other words, we're everywhere, aren't we, Jane? Pretty much everywhere. Thank you for joining us. And we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Very soon.